Don't let yourself get attached to anything you are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat around the corner. Welcome to Filmstrip. Who? Who? These podcasts will be spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films. But I don't have to sell this, and you know it, because this air sells itself. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Kurt. And I am Ron. And this is our review of Heat. No, not the Melissa McCarthy, Sandra Bullock movie. No, not the Burt Reynolds movie. The ones... Not the documentary on the Miami basketball team. <laughs> Indeed. It is the 1995 film starring Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Val Kilmer, Tom Sizemore, Ashley Judd, Michael T. Williamson, and John Voight. Directed by Michael Mann, released in 95, as we said, on a budget of $60 million, grows to $187 million worldwide, and has a very distinct legacy in uh, action and crime film genre if you will kurt you and i've been talking about doing this thing for about a year and just trying to find time to you know, get it in in between game of thrones and best films of 47 and you know me doing american ninja <laughs> movies and every other thing and so we were trying to find the time to squeeze it in and i said you know what let's start off 2015 with a bang so we're going to do it to kick off 2015 here and in conversations with Ron, he let me know something very interesting that he had never seen this film before. Uh-huh. So I thought, hey, having somebody brand new to the thing on here, always a good perspective to have. So, Kurt, let's start with you, though. First time you saw Heat and just general impressions and stuff. Well, first time I saw Heat would have been maybe 2003, 2004. And my opinion of it was at the time was... I didn't care for it at all. I oh. was, and it, it was just a case of I was just, I was just too young. Like I, I hated Chinatown, Blade <laughs> wow. Runner. I just, I just didn't like those movies. I, I, then I watched them again. Right. Because the movie that got me to watch Heat again was The Dark Knight. Because yeah. in all the interviews for The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan said he's always the first one to say, "Oh yeah, he, Dark Knight is pretty much almost a half a rip off of, of Heat." It was just I, I was echoing Michael Mann and Heat that whole movie. And thinking of and thinking about and watched Heat again, thinking about it like, you know, De Niro and Pacino as Batman and the Joker, watching it like that, gave me a whole new perspective on the movie, and I fell madly in love with it. I and it went from, you know, hating the film to adoring it. This is one of the all-time best crime films ever, in my opinion. You know, like as you look up crime in a movie dictionary, <laughs> you're going to see a picture of. Of, of 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 Robert De Niro in a hockey mask holding a, you know, an assault rifle. I agree. I saw this when it came out in theaters in 1995. I uh, was, it was actually in between semesters, my first semester of college, and I, I'm you know pretty decent De Niro fan. Of course, like Pacino and some things. I actually like him when he goes real campy and big, which is this is perfect for me because he does some of that here. And I, I but I like Michael Mann films and had known Michael Mann, of course, Miami Vice and I knew Manhunter and lots of other stuff he had done. And so, and I think I. 
I had actually seen the TV run of this, L.A. Takedown. We'll talk about that in a second. But I saw the advertisement for this, and I said, oh, that looks cool. And I went to like a 9.35 showing of this thing. <laughs> and I get up to 1 in the morning. There's nobody wow. there but me in the theater. And I'm like, man, I need somebody to talk to this movie about. So I had to like call friends of mine who were at home on Christmas vacation saying, look, you got to go watch this. We'll talk about it when you get back in the next semester. And so I've owned this in multiple formats through the years. I had like the double VHS and then I had the one VHS and then you finally a DVD, Blu-ray and all that stuff. Now, Ron, we already teased that you've never seen this before, but just kind of, I mean, yeah, I know the stuff that you watch. You really like action movies and stuff. Tell us how you missed this one. I think I was just in one of my many contrarian phases. Uh, I mean, I'm the person who didn't see The Godfather until, you know, six months ago. Uh, so, you know, and clear every so often a movie comes around where everyone says, oh, you have to watch it. It's amazing. It's one of the greatest blah, blah, blah. And then I just dig my heels in. I just said, nope, not going to watch it. Yeah. I'm going to go watch American Ninja 4. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'll say this about this one. Nobody, I don't remember people really talking about this one. It got critical acclaim. It made money, but it kind of came and went. And I think it has found its life on home video and in the, you know, the television reruns of it and stuff, particularly like HBO and Showtime and things. I think people appreciate it more having seen other things Michael Mann's done since. And then, like you mentioned, Kurt, The Dark Knight definitely gave it another push. And I would argue, too, you, you know, if, if Heat begat the Dark Knight, then Heat begat the Dark Knight begat most of Skyfall as well. Hmm. So I think there's there's a lots of tie-ins and tons of things. But you know, crime films in the '90s, guys, were not sophisticated like this. If you go back and watch like the Lethal Weapon films and Die Hard, it was always you know one man against the the gang of terrorists or something, which was sort of a, a knockout of that Chuck Norris 80s Golden Globus stuff that you and I've talked about, Ron. So, I mean, we, we were still in that for lack of a better way of saying it, superhero mode of of cop versus criminal. And to have a film that comes out that there's a real balance between the two was starkly different from anything else that was on the screen at the time. It's it's funny that uh, Kurt mentioned uh, Batman and the Joker, because I kind of got paired but in reverse, in that Pacino was almost the Joker figure, <laughs> uh, you know, running around beating guys up, you know, yelling about women's asses. <laughs> and, and De Niro was, was almost the honorable, like, Batman, because he had his code. Like, he didn't want to... You know, he didn't want Tom Sizemore to leave his wife and kids and go on that last job. You know, he was going to take care of uh, Val Kilmer's wife and so on and so forth. He was almost the honorable one with his secret double life. All he needed was the voice. And Pacino was aging police. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, no, you're that's an interesting way to look at it, too. I think I think that's a. I don't know. There's a lots of parallels we can make to this. It'll be fun to see it. Now, I have to ask you guys, have either of you seen the what really amounts to the TV dry run of this called L.A. Takedown? It's actually on YouTube now. This is one of those movies I just I keep hearing about. You know, Every time I watch Heat, I think in the back of my mind, i got to watch L.A. Takedown, but I just, I just haven't managed <laughs> to do it yet. I did not get a chance to watch it. I did see the link. I watched like the opening credits of 
shirtless Michael Plank writhing around. And then it's like, maybe I shouldn't, you know, watch this around people. <laughs> maybe I need to go somewhere. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's actually pretty tame. Honestly, it's, if you strip out the Van Zant sub story and most of the Shaheerless story, you, you pretty well have what LA takedown was. It was more about, can we get the, uh, I don't know the, the action, right. What's funny is Xander Berkeley has a bit part in heat as, uh, you know, the, boyfriend of Al Pacino's wife or hookup or whatever you want to call him is actually Wayne Grow in LA Takedown. And he is gives a terrible performance. It, it is worth watching just to watch him be awful on the screen. So uh, he is uh he's bad, but it's I mean they they don't they don't even stack up, not even close and the ending's vastly different, but um it's it's an interesting experiment. I would never recommend it to another person to watch, but if you you know if you're if you like heat, you know the Again, the link's on YouTube. We'll put it on the page. If you want to watch it, knock yourself out. I'm fine with that. But, uh, you know, it's it's an, a neat experiment, though, because the thing is, this movie, you know, we're coming up here at the end of 2015 here. You know, we're releasing this in January, but this movie will be 20 years old at the end of this year. But the script is almost like 40 years old. That's the thing is Michael Mann has had this idea running around in his head for a chunk of his life. I think it clearly shows that this is something he's been working on for a long time because it's both intricate and it's it's everything kind of ends up tying together there's a lot of content to it but it's all really well written and and the characters seem fairly well defined at least our two major characters do what came to mind watching this movie is that michael mann has a respect for both sides of the law as it turns out and both neither side is aside from maybe wayne grow no character in this movie is depicted as purely good or purely evil, and there isn't a specific, you know, hero and villain. You could maybe say De Niro was the villain of this movie, but in a way, I mean, if you're if you're on like I'm 100% on De Niro's side, I want him to succeed, and in that, you know, Pacino is the antagonist to his has happiness of getting away and you know living with his money. So, in a way, I, I see Pacino as a as a as a villain per se of this movie, but. But yeah, that 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 depiction of the hero of the the cops and criminals uh, as sort of equally matched too that comes to mind that neither side is stupid and neither side is smarter than the other. Every once in a while, one of them one side gets a drop on the other, but uh, really, it's like everyone in this movie is a, a professional, and that's something yeah. Michael Mann is all about. It, the, the characters in his films tend to be like you know the best at what they do kurt i know where you are on michael mann films ron where are you just on you know michael mann is in general i wouldn't go so far as to say i'm the michael mann super fan but i mean i enjoy manhunter you know and i've enjoyed some of his work uh, i haven't gone out and sought like sought out like everything that he's done but i mean i dig last of the mohicans as much as you know the next daniel day lewis nerd so <laughs> And that's a good film, but you know, just on its own right. Michael Mann's one of these guys that he kind of, in some ways, reminds me a little bit of Kubrick in the way that he just gets so involved with the subject of what he's doing. And you hit it right on the, the head, Ron, by saying this clearly was a, a project he had a lot of passion for. I sort of relate it to the way that Nolan was about Inception. That was an idea he had had forever. And it took him, you know, till he got to a, a level of success where he could produce what he wanted out of it. And Michael Mann has said that, you know, he 
he did, you know, heat or LA takedown and sort of laid it on the side and said, okay, someday maybe I can come back to that, do something else with it. And then he went off and did, you know, a lot of other things. And as he was looking for something else to do and what was going to be the next bid in his filmography after Last of Mohicans, he said, you know what, I think I, I think I want to go back to that that heat script. There was a lot of that we cut out, and I want to want to look at that again. And so it brought us to what becomes this film. And so. Kurt, why don't you go ahead and give us a plot summary, and then we'll get into the discussion of the film. Sure. Expert thief Neil McCauley, played by Robert De Niro, lives by one basic creed. Be attached to nothing you can't walk away from in 30 seconds if you spot the heat coming around the corner. Well, the heat coming around the corner is ace L.A. detective Lieutenant Vincent Hanna, played by Al Pacino. After an armored car robbery gets unnecessarily violent, Hanna's squad is pitted in a cat-and-mouse game against McCauley's crew. Hannah, a man obsessed by his work, even at the cost of his personal life, thwarts one job by the crew and interrupts the getaway from a downtown bank robbery. A small battle ensues between the cops and the crew, where several of the criminals and cops are wounded or killed. Hannah and McCulley have a final face-off just beyond an airport landing strip, where Hannah gets the upper hand. McCulley is illuminated by the landing lights. Hannah shoots McCulley, and as he dies, the two men shake hands in a moment of respect. And we kept that really short for a movie that's nearly three hours long, and I think that's because there's so much that happens in it. And what what I want to do is kind of start with our two main characters, then talk about their crews, the adversaries, and then really the way to look at this film is to think about it in terms of the, the heists or the jobs that are built. There's really three of them, and then there's a coda at the end, which is I call the heat around the corner. So let, let's get into this and just talk about Macaulay from the start. You know, we've already described him in, in a couple different ways. He could either be you know the noble Batman, or if you want to look at him as the villain, he's the the Joker, or maybe Two Face, or something. But really, he is the, like the quintessential ice water in his veins, totally professional archetype of the perfect criminal in a lot of ways. He's got it all going on. He's always three steps ahead, and by his own creed, there's nothing that keeps him tied down. Oh, he's a uh, he's a fascinating character uh, based on a real person. Uh... This whole movie is based on a real event uh, of uh, cops and robbers that happened in Chicago in the late '60s, and and Macaulay, he's just a great character. And when I think of like just professional characters, characters that are just you know great at what's great at being a, a president or or a soldier or in this case veteran thief, he's an expert at everything when it comes to stealing anything, and getting away without a trace, lethal, more than willing to kill. To get what he wants, he'll avoid it if he if he can. But if it, you know, at the drop of a hat, if he sees that there's no other alternative, he'll him and Macaulay's crew have no problem just picking up a gun and shooting everyone that they can to get away. And he says, uh, there's a great line when he says this to Amy uh, Brenneman, it's like, "I am alone, but I'm not lonely." I think he's lying to himself there. Like he's this is a guy who his creed, which is actually a very good creed to have if you're a thief and you know you're constantly in in danger of being apprehended and so on. To have no attachments, no possessions, nothing like a monk, where nothing you you know nothing that you can care about walking away from. But deep down inside, I think he you know he he wants something to he wants attachments and so on. He wants to be with this woman, Amy Brenneman, and that's what you know brings him down in the end. And this definitely comes up every time I watch it is that this guy is so good at what he does. He's a brilliant thief. This guy clears you know millions of dollars, but he does not seem to enjoy this lifestyle he's chosen, despite excelling at it. Well, you know what? You hit on something there that I, I want to talk about for a sec is the idea of 
not being attached to anything, but we get several scenes where he's out with his crew or he's with them and their extended families. And you see him watching them and it's not this moment of like, it's not jealousy so much or covetousness. He just watches it and is like, I wonder if I could do that. Like, I wonder what that would feel like to have somebody like that to come home to. And then he calls Amy Brenneman for the, you know, proverbial booty call or whatever it is, you know, and, and ultimately falls in love with her. And I mean, that's, it really catches him in a, in a corner in the end. That's part of his demise. But I think you hit, hit on him uh, pretty good there with that, Kurt. It's, it's very interesting to watch uh, Macaulay kind of watch the dynamics of these relationships around him. You know, everybody in his crew seems to have, you know, a wife or a girlfriend or uh, kids or what have you. And he is the only one who's alone. And he, at, at some points to me, it seems like he's studying them, like he's trying to plot something like he's trying to put together the man. He's got the manual on how to crack into a safe. He's got the manual on how to steal a car. Now he's looking for the manual on how to land a wife. (laughs) And it's, and it's like, he's doing, he's watching them like, you know, laugh and have fun. And he's sitting there like doing mental calculus. It's like, okay, so if I approach woman X at a bar, if I come from Y angle, you know, I've got five minutes uh, of, of drinking time before she finishes a red wine. <laughs> you know, it's very, it's very much like he can't, almost like he can't turn it off. Like it's the constant calculus in his head. That is an amazing observation. I've never thought about it like that before, but that it's neat to sort of sit back and I'm thinking about scenes right now where I can see that happening in his eyes and just give that to De Niro too, for being able to pull that off. It's all in the way that his almost blank face just sort of, scans around a room you know even when he's not you don't even realize what he's doing you know but you watch this film multiple times you realize every time Macaulay walks in a room he looks at the corners of the room and he looks for the door I noticed that this time watching it and I was like wow that is I mean it's just a it's a great little character moment but it's and it's great because it doesn't it, it, it never really reaches his face but you can see it move you can see it in like really subtle stuff uh, that he's doing facially. It's yeah. not. It's not tele. It's really probably one of his greatest performances, and you know, it's probably why he's since given up acting. Basically, <laughs> yeah. I think you you wrote me a note earlier. He said this film was a murderer's row of good actors that had finally just given up. So just <laughs> an interesting way of looking at it. But no, I mean, I I think the Macaulay character is just fascinating to watch the way he operates and to watch his arc throughout the film is, is great. But on the other side, you have Vincent Hanna, Al Pacino. And I mean, you know, Al Pacino to me, it's hard to compare the Pacino of like dog day afternoon and the Godfather and the Godfather part two to the guy that, you know, is in this sin of a woman and like devil's advocate. It's like very different people, (laughs) the way that he acts, but he's, he's, I don't know. he, said something in an interview once that he kind of made it his little actors, you know, inside thing that off screen that, um, Hannah was, uh, like, you know, doing shots of cocaine just to get up you know, <laughs> for the day and stuff. And I could, I could believe that the way he's real manic in a lot of ways. Oh yeah. It definitely comes across that this guy, I mean, it's, I wonder if, if it would have been interesting to actually do it, because that would yeah. have brought some you know, justification to his behavior, as opposed to some people just saying it's Al Pacino being over the top. But with that, I always have that in the back of my head, that you know, maybe in unseen scenes he's doing cocaine, because it absolutely explains how he just explodes in so many scenes whenever he's talking to a criminal. 
like like just, just all of a sudden just he just literally bursts into song um in at one moment <laughs> yeah a great moment singing about you know when i get to phoenix and, and so on but i think if you cut to him like a cut to a shot of him cleaning a mirror with his nose mm-hmm. it's gonna be it's gonna stray really far into bad lieutenant territory <laughs> that's a good point so. and if you're gonna do that just go ahead and bring harvey Keitel in <laughs> uh, and about you know about Pacino, like he absolutely, is, I would say he absolutely is uh, that manic, you know, crazy Pacino that he was in the '90s. However, there's you know some of those over-the-top performances aren't so good. I would I would put Scarface in the bad performance category in terms of that's that's too over the top. This one, uh, uh, him in this movie, I think is probably my favorite explosive Pacino. Maybe this with and uh, Glengarry Glenn Ross. In terms of just and that explosive thing, because it just, I don't, it just for some reason it just makes sense with with his character, and he he talks about how, you know, he just keeps all this angst and stuff bottled inside him because it just keeps him on the edge all the time where he where he needs to be, and that makes him, you know, great at his job. Uh, and it's not, and, do, and it's sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say that that him being on the edge and so on, it makes him you know great at what he does because he absolutely, like I was saying, no one in this movie is depicted as stupid. He's as good a cop as Macaulay is a, a thief. Like mm-hmm. he's ex- uh, Hannah is extremely intelligent, at what he, uh, great at what he does. Like when when, when that armored car robbery, when he shows up on the scene, he knows every single thing to check out. Like ch- like this guy, one guy said the word slick. Look up. There's that camera. It's probably shut off. Check it anyway. Like you know, he just he absolutely is a uh, brilliant detective and just dedicated to his job to the point of being uh, uh, obsessive. Like. Yeah, like he absolutely <laughs> lets it. He has no problem letting it destroy his personal life. He just doesn't care. He love he loves being a cop, but I don't think this guy cares at all really about having a family despite being married. Well, that's the thing about these two guys. That's what makes them interesting characters. Is that it's about two men that are totally obsessed with their work, you know. And even if they're on different sides of the you know the law, they're obsessed with their work, and that has consequences on it. I think Pacino chooses his spots better here than he does in, in other movies where he's explosive Pacino. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that probably has to do with Michael Mann having a pretty, uh, being, you know, fairly well-known director by this point. Not Pacino could just roll over. Right. I mean, clearly he's he's got some kind of respect uh, from his actors because he's able to, it, it seems like he's got fairly good control over both of them. And he, he has a good innate sense of when to let Pacino uh, be Pacino and when to you know kind of get him to dial it down some. I'll say this too about Michael Mann. The thing that he he helps his his actors with here is that he gives supporting members of the cast that are at least somewhat interesting to follow. Like that's the thing about L.A. Takedown. You don't care about anybody but Hannah and Macaulay and that because the uh, the rest of the cops and the rest of the crew totally underdeveloped you know nothing about them you don't care when they die you know you just move on you know they're they're just for set decoration and plot points and here they're not all totally fleshed out but there's something for them to play off of and i really think it's it's neat the way hannah commands the other cops because he he only loses his stuff when he's with michael t williamson when he's with drucker like with the other guys he you know he's demonstrative and he's tough but he never like just goes out of his skull but when he's with the Drucker, it's like that's the one he's known the longest or whatever, and he, he'll be more of himself when he's with Drucker. Yeah, Drucker, Drucker's clearly like his partner. Yeah. And the other guys are just dudes on his squad. Yeah. And I mean, 
I think you're right. Having a, a good cast of interesting characters helps. And I think that you really do have like a great collection of character actors here. I mean, you've got like your Wes Studi. You've got Jamie Gum himself, Ted Levine. Yes. I mean, clearly you don't want to freak out on that guy because he'll <laughs> wear your skin. Yeah, does it, does it wear anybody else out when you see him in other roles? I know he did Monk and all that stuff, and it's it's just weird to see him not going, put the lotion in the basket. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was weird that he wasn't Wayne Grow. But... <laughs> <laughs> he could he could have been, yeah. So. And, and I mean you went through you went through a list of like ten people and you didn't even get half the like noteworthy guys. I mean, you left out William Fitchner. Yeah. I mean you, you know, you left out uh, Tom Hank, Henry Tom, Rollins is in this. Tom movie. Noonan, Henry yeah. Rollins, Hank yeah. Azaria. Yeah. There's a uh, I mean this cast is massive. I, I tried to keep the cast list as you know economical as possible, but it is it could have been the longest one we've ever had. <laughs> It's yeah, big. and uh, did you mention um, what's his name? Allstate. Uh, no, Dennis I, I did not mention Dennis Haysbert. No, he's <laughs> barely in this, but yeah, he does make an appearance at the end. And I'm, I'm like, it's President Palmer as a and getaway he, driver. And he, and he even gets a tiny little character arc, and mm-hmm. he's getting abused by none other than uh, Harold and Maude himself, uh, Bud Court. <laughs> yes, he is. I forgot Bud Court was in this. Yeah. So hey, Bud yeah. Court. Managing managing to play the most despicable character in a movie with a you know white supremacist serial killer <laughs> exactly <laughs> which is which is amazing he's it's almost like he's the cousin of the guy that ran the Dixie Boy in Maximum Overdrive if y'all have ever seen that because yeah, it's the same kind of racket he's got going on <laughs> I mean it's it's like look my brother in law down in Florida or North Carolina ran this rig I know how to do it <laughs> you know <laughs> so that's a great connection I hadn't I would have never thought to connect in Maximum Overdrive with Heat well now, it, there's the cocaine there. connection there too between Pacino's oh, character and <laughs> and uh, Stephen King too, so who knows? So, good point. So yeah, which King has admitted it's, that, so we won't get sued. But anyway, it's just a shame that you couldn't. Uh, they couldn't have also brought Michael Rooker over to be in this movie from uh, L.A. Takedown. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say he's in L.A. Takedown, so I yeah he would have he would have fit well as one of the other cops. I don't know why they couldn't get him. What I think is funny is they've got Danny Trejo and they just call him Trejo. They didn't even give him a name. It's just like, yeah, you're, you're, you're next con anyway. You'll do. So I, the the crews, we've kind of introduced them all there. Let's talk about the crews. Let's talk about Macaulay's crew. That All of them and the one we haven't talked about, Val Kilmer, Chris Scheherlis. I'm going to say on record now, my two favorite Val Kilmer performances of all time are Tombstone and this. Because he is wonderful in both of them. Because he doesn't have to carry the thing by himself. And... And I think he is fantastic in this film. Have you seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? I have, and that is a that is a strong entry, yes, very much. But I I will still hold Tombstone as Doc Holliday and this up in front of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yeah, he's great because he's absolutely a leading man kind of guy. I mean, he you know he's a guy that this was know, Batman Forever. <laughs> exactly. This is he, this is the same year he's, he's yeah. playing Batman, and he works great in a very for for Val Kilmer very small uh, role. As just uh, uh, Neil's, uh, you know, right hand man. Well, he's uh, Neil's true. Drucker. If if that we're gonna have the parallels, right? I mean, that's who he really oh, yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. It's it's weird that the the third lead is is basically an afterthought in the in every discussion of Heat. I don't. I've I, after I watched it, I went and looked at other people talking about Heat just to you know try to get a grasp on what people were saying. And Val Kilmer's name barely even comes up. I, I think he's he's so I, I don't know 
anonymous in this role. He looks so different. I mean, they do everything with him. He's got that long hair, that weird scar. They do something to his left elbow, which apparently that's like a real Val Kilmer injury, but you never see that on any other shot of him. They, they're always covering it up with sleeves or whatever. And it's it gives that character like a humanity, you know? And in the robberies and stuff, I mean, he's always setting the explosives. He's running the drills. He's the, well, the right-hand man, like you say. I mean, he's the lieutenant. And I, but he, you can almost lose him in this film because you don't get the stuff you get from Val Kilmer in this film. He plays so small compared to De Niro and Pacino. It's, it's amazing to watch him be this, you know, gambling addict thief. Yeah, it's, it is a, it's a good character. And in the end, a very, uh, sad character like this is an, 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 you know, another guy who never gets to enjoy the riches that this guy collects because he's a gambling addict he, you know he, he only he only gets the money to gamble and, and steals again to uh you know because he lost he's got to pay off the debt uh one of the i think he absolutely might be next to you know macaulay's ending has the saddest ending of any mm-hmm. character who doesn't die that uh he manages to fulfill that creed that macaulay has of you know like you know don't form any attachments, and if you do, be able to walk away. And he does the thing of he walks away. You know, he sees uh, his wife, and when she gives the signal that I'm with, there's cops in the next room, he makes the decision to uh, walk away, as painful as it is. And that's a great scene. Oh, Val, that- Val Kilmer, that is some good acting. Just the expression, just, you know, just dropping on his face of real the realization of this is the last this is probably the last time I'm ever going to see her I'm not going to see my son again mm-hmm. but that's that's the life I've chosen you know that's you know this is this is the business we've chosen yeah <laughs> exactly no I I thought he was fantastic it, again in this role playing it so understated and like you said sad he's the definitely the tortured one of the group and he's got the most problems and he's also got the most to lose you feel like but and of all the guys that you know wouldn't be able to walk away you figure it's probably not him because look they give him the gorgeous wife Ashley Judd and her incredible cuteness here and the cute kid and you know all this stuff there's no way this guy will ever be able to walk away from that and then when and, you know, it finally comes down to it. Yeah, he does. He makes that decision. So, but what about the, the little subplot here? And again, this is something that's unique to Heed is Charlene's cheating on him behind his back. And Macaulay like finds out about it. And it's like, look, I know your husband's a jerk or whatever, but you can give me one more chance and then I'll set you up on, on my own. And I love how he, even people he does, that don't work for him. He still has like immense control over them. I think, and I don't know if that's out of like a you know a quote unquote love for Chris as much as it is he, he knows this bank job's coming up and he needs his number two guy, so you know go ahead and it's like once we're done this job you screw whoever you want but for the next couple of weeks I'm going to need him uh, sharp. Mm-hmm. It, it's funny to me because it seems like uh, Chris is going down the Macaulay or, or Chris has, has a lot in common with. Uh, Hannah with uh, Al Pacino's character in that his love of the job, or in this case, his, uh, his gambling is what's putting his marriage in danger. Mm-hmm. And he's going to, he could very easily end up becoming the criminal version of, of uh, Al Pacino. And to me, the guy who seemed like he had the most to lose and they make a point of mentioning it before the last job. So, you know, he's going to die <laughs> is uh, Chirito. Yeah. Uh, the Tom Sizemore uh, character. Because there's, because I, I know at some point that McCoy, you've got a wife and kids and you've, you're apparently a millionaire and you've got your real estate. Why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. And he just is doing it for the thrill. 
rather than any real need for the money at this point. He's the one who was able to successfully both save his money and have a life and be good at the job. Yeah, he's an interesting character. Outside of Saving Private Ryan, probably the most interesting thing Tom Sizemore's ever done, too. And I, I like the fact that Chirito is such a, a hound for action that he can't stay away from it. I mean, even the, you know the fact that he gives it up basically to Tone Loke in a great cameo by the way about oh I got nothing going on I got nothing going on and Tone Loke's like then I know this guy's got something going on because he never talks like that and you know they they basically figure them all out by identifying that guy's tattoos and I mean it's the police work is amazing it's like real police work it's you know it's not just roll up and take a couple of photos and then all of a sudden boom we're in trial part eight you know I mean that I love how they actually go through the police work of it here but it is that's a neat observation on Chirito with Sizemore because you're right. He, he's the one that's actually figured out how to balance life the best, but he his big flaw is that he can't give up the action. I also think that scene when uh, Macaulay says, you know, he's like, this is your last chance. Like, it's either we do this job or we walk our separate ways and never see each other again. And he tell and and Mike says, well, I'm you know I'm down with you. Whatever you want to do. And Macaulay says, no, you're on your own in this one. And he t- there's like a long gap of silence where it's Mike. He's like a. I'm trying to think of a comparison. He's like a. He's like a. a the guys who like hang around a bully. Like once the bully's gone, they don't like you know they don't. They don't mean anything. That's that's what I think of when I think of Mike. Is that without Neil, this guy doesn't know what to do. He needs a leader. This guy could not be Macaulay. He he couldn't lead. He couldn't find a job and, you know, take on it all himself. He needs someone to give him orders, and, and so on. And he's a really good character. Yeah, Tom Sizemore. Wonderful character actor. Such a shame that it's not his talent at all. That's that's at all you know dragged him down to where he is now. It's literally his you know physical uh, drug addiction that's ruined Tom Sizemore's career. But I hope he comes back because he is outstanding. Watch True Romance, Natural Born Killers, Black Hawk Down. He's all he's always good in all of his you know solid work. And I do like this character. I love it. The first scene he has, uh, how dead you know dead serious this guy is. Like a, you know when uh, <laughs> Wayne Grove. <laughs> keeps keeps asking him questions like yeah so like how about you shut up for a second uh, you know stop, don't talk so much so, well e- even when before Wangro decides to get it on and shoot that guard or whatever he's like hey slick you see that stuff running out of his ears he can't hear nothing <laughs> you know so stop talking to him you know and I, I I liked it too it's it's a he's gets the neatest introduction because he's driving this truck and you have no idea what's going on and like Wangro runs up to the truck he's like hold on who are you you know he's it's gonna check him out you know. So he's given responsibility is the idea. So I mean, it's, it's a it's a neat performance. You flip that with Hannah's crew, and I'll say this: I do think Macaulay's crew as a whole is better fleshed out than the Hannah crew because yeah. really Drucker's the only other one we get to know. You have good actors like Ted Levine and, and Wes Studi in there, and I don't know Jerry Trimble from anything other than I think this may be the only thing I've ever seen him in. But you know they're fine as cops and they do real cop work, but really Drucker's the only one of them that I feel like gets a, a lot to play off of. I don't know if I'd call that a flaw as much as a missed opportunity. Uh, how like yeah, like Pacino's really the only cop that we get to uh, really delve into their lives. Like and and Drucker, we only know his name. We don't really get to know what his life is like, you know, when he's not a cop. And I just think Michael Mann. I mean, he's do with this much detail that he's putting in there. I, I would love it if he just went all the way out. Like let's see where what every one of these guys does at home. It would just bring so much more to the eventual ensuing shootout if we got to know Ted Levine 
and what he's like. So it would, it would mean a lot more when he's eventually killed because it kind of doesn't. He's he's kind of just another cop, uh, more or less. Yeah, he is just kind of there as a as another stand-in. But you need those guys because again, the realism of it is there would never be one detective or even two detectives that would just be figuring all this out. They would have a team of guys working the phones, digging through files, doing stuff here, there, and yonder to to accomplish this goal. And I I don't know. I like that the realistic factor of that. Oh yeah, and uh, I've heard other people point this out that. I love that this avoids certain cliches of cop films like uh, Hannah is not a renegade. He's not uh, there's never he's never dragged into the commissioner's office to be told about, you know, hey, you haven't caught him yet. You know, you're spending too much money. It's just whoever his boss are, boss is, uh, they're just letting him get on with the work, the, the, the major crimes. You know, they're just they're just left alone. Apparently, they're given unlimited funds to do whatever they're doing. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, they just and they just they get on with it. They don't. Uh, like I said, they're as good at being cops as Macaulay's guys are being thieves. They needed, uh, oh, what was his name from Miami Vice, the TV show? Uh, Edward James Olmos. Edward James yeah, Olmos. they need Edward James Olmos or like Robert Doquie from uh, RoboCop to come in and be like, you're a good cop, but your wrath is orthodox. You're pushing it too far. <laughs> well, they could have done that. Well, you know, he almost does that anyway. If you've seen the movie version of Miami Vice, that almost feels like a pseudo sequel to Heat, with just different people in it. There's a I mean, there's a big you know captain character of that too. But I I don't know. I I didn't really realize I was missing that character until watching it this time. And I thought, you know, we don't ever see like his commanding officer talking to him. As a matter of fact, the, every time we see Pacino around other cops, he's the cop in charge, even to the SWAT commander that, you know, wants to go in heavy after they've screwed up the, the sting operation on the, the second robbery. And he's like, no, 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 no. We're letting them go. Cause I'm not going to let these guys walk on, you know, ridiculous, nothing charges. We're going to get them for the real thing. Or we're not going to get them at all. And I, I was like, man, that's neat to be that confident and in charge of his crew. But I, I agree with you guys. There's not much more to Hannah's crew. And the only way they could have ever fleshed that out. And I'll say this now. I, I don't know that this will be the end of heat that we ever see. I could foresee a channel like FX or something doing a whale of a TV show of this, or maybe even HBO oh, yeah. or Showtime. I, this would be a great serialized show if they ever wanted to, you know, dig something up and do something a little different. But more on that later. I do want to talk about the two other adversaries here on the side before we get into the jobs and stuff, because you mentioned them a little bit ago, Rod, Roger Van Zant, William Fitchner, and Hugh Benny, his right hand thug, Henry Rollins, um, who Van Zant will learn is basically like a, a money launderer among, you know, being a legitimate businessman too. And he's the guy they rip off in the first of it. And Niels Fence is like, hey, why don't you sell it back to the guy you stole it from? That way he gets what was his back and you make a little on the side too. And he decides, oh, I'm just going to screw these guys and kill them. And he's also part of the reason Neil ultimately dies because he won't let it go. It's like he's got to get revenge on the guy. And he, talk about just the perfect sleazy businessman. I, maybe not since Miguel Ferrer in uh, RoboCop mm-hmm. that, I, that I see a, an executive. I wanted to get shot faster than this guy. I think yeah, they really, all work. Yeah, they all work for the same company. <laughs> oh, OCP, everybody's there. Yeah, William Fitchner's <laughs> clearly working for OCP and their money laundering division. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, and and I like like uh, Christopher Nolan. You know, is obviously a huge, you know, massive biggest fan of. He clearly picked William Fitchner to be in the movie he, in the very first scene of The Dark Knight. I think that is a hundred percent a wink to Heat fans. Like you know, hey, he's in Heat, pretty, pretty much playing the same character yeah, that, the he, that he played. Yeah. In, yeah. And yeah, I do. And uh, 
he's an interesting character. I like he's such a. I love how tough he thinks he is when he finds out they're gonna. Oh, they're trying to sell me them. Oh, well, I'm gonna kill the sons of bitches, and he's just you know carrying on with his work, and then the most poorly conceived assassination goes down and that particular <laughs> that hitman has the worst day of anyone's life he is killed about as thoroughly as anyone he's he's crushed between two cars then shot by a sniper then shot by de niro and he's hit uh, smashed with the car i mean that is that 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 is you know d-e-d dead I love, uh, <laughs> yeah someone's killed <laughs> like that definitive he's the uh he's the emil of <laughs> yeah yeah, they definitely killed him twice. I mean, and of course, after after that goes down, Van Sant is absolutely panicked. Next time we see him, he's unshaven and he's literally got you know sheets and stuff on his uh, on his couch in his office. That right. this guy is he's absolutely terrified because of one of maybe my favorite scene in the movie is when you know De Niro foils that assassination attempt. Then he calls him up and uh, says, uh, "I'm I'm talking into an empty telephone." Because there is a dead man on the other end of this fucking line. That is a great De Niro moment. And then, of course, when when that conversation ends, anyone on the other end would probably just sleep in their office and never leave the building. Because when that guy's after you, you know, you would, you, you, oh, you panic. First thing, you'd have to go home and change pants because he probably pooped in them. And then, <laughs> and then he would have to go back and sleep at the office with Henry Rollins as his bodyguard. I, I, this is funny to me because Henry Rollins is like. Rock and roll's political tough guy. Is that a good description of him, Ron? Yeah, that's well. He's like a um, a philosopher in the the body of a cage fighter. Yeah, so <laughs> he's he's very much a mental guy, mm-hmm. and it's clear watching him in this movie that he is absolutely petrified of, to be around these famous people. Because that's the other thing that Henry Rollins is, if nothing else, he's kind of a fanboy. Mm-hmm. Like he's the a giant fanboy, and I know the whole time he's in this movie, he's freaking out that he's in this movie because hmm. I've listened to a lot of his spoken word and his his comedy specials and and read some of his books and all that stuff. I'm big, I'm a big mark for Henry Rollins, and and he is clearly he knows he he doesn't belong there, hmm. but I think that's what makes the character it kind it kind of works for me not just because it's Henry Rollins, but because he looks like somebody's bodyguard who, like, he was a bouncer, and William Fitchner, he, he kicked William Fitchner out of a strip club one day, and he was like, hey, you want a job? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't feel like somebody he picked up off the streets and then, you know, kind of civilized, because he's wearing, like, Armani suits, but with a t-shirt, which is hmm. very Henry Rollins. But, I, you know, the thing is, is I love how ultimately he flips on everybody too and lets them know what's going down you know and and how uh wango try to feed him you know feeding uh macaulay and these guys and it's i don't know it's neat it's that they're neat side characters again it's, there's so much here in this film you can spend days talking about all of them but let, let's get into the heist guys and just talk about the way those go down and how both sides really react and the, the opening one is is incredibly exciting it's the armored car heist and we've sort of set up how it happens and things but i don't know what did you see what did you like about the armored car heist because the thing that always struck me was how precise and timed and perfect everything seemed to be worked out it's like these guys had drawn this up in doc brown's lab 10 times with you know model cars before they ever went and did it the actual jobs themselves all of them gene siskel loved this movie and he pointed out this is a movie where you watch this movie 
you're going to get a good idea of how to actually do this stuff. Because Michael Mann is such an insane stickler for detail that there's no 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 step in the process is uh, is skipped. Like the movie opens with De Niro go, doing all this stuff, walking through a hospital just to steal an ambulance that'll just be the getaway car. Like mm-hmm. you know, and and yeah, I love how uh, these guys are like military precision when it comes to this job. Like you know, they're not. They're not just a but like De Niro says to Pacino, "Do I look like some you know asshole with a born to lose tattoo? You know, stick holding up liquor stores?" It's like, no, no, no. This is like these guys uh, clearly put months into this one armored car job. Like, like you know, time probably spend weeks timing out the response times to a nine one one call, so that they know like listening to the police scanners. Okay, there's the call. So we got three minutes to get out of here. Mm-hmm. I love that kind of stuff. Like, uh, and I love that they. They're specifically, they you know, they're not going in to steal money. They're stealing Barabon specifically. They specifically uh, ignore the money that's mm-hmm. there. Uh, and I love this job. And I love. Uh, we didn't talk about. Uh, I wouldn't say he's the best performance in the movie, but he's a very interesting character. This guy Wayne Grow. Yes. This guy. I love the very first scene. The very first thing we see him do is uh, walking up to some, uh, you know, a, a, a little. Uh, booth and he says hey give me another free refill and i think i love that reminds me of steve buscemi at the beginning of reservoir dogs uh, talking about not tipping it's like you're about to clear uh, maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars and you can't afford to get a large soda or something i I love that yeah i love how how he talks so much game you know like he's such a badass and what we'll learn is i mean he's a psychotic because he murders a hooker later and he's i mean he's this guy's just bad news all the way and you wonder how macaulay and these guys ever got hooked up with this loser yeah that's the thing that sticks out to me is that everybody is dead on precise except wangro i'm like how did they ever get mixed up with this dude I think it has to be a case of an, uh, you know, maybe a deleted scene of they had another guy and he was either killed or arrested or something because cl- like clearly he has never met any of these guys before. Like he doesn't, he yeah. ne- he's never met Tom Sizemore at all. So he, maybe he just got that job that day. Like we need someone today. Can you do it? The same way Dennis Haysbert is recruited, uh, yeah. you know, all of a sudden because that was a, certainly a, a bad call because this guy, he's clearly, he wants to kill people he wants to be that he is that idiot with the born to lose tattoo mm-hmm. who might as well be holding up liquor stores like he just you know the guy's not the, the, the security guard is not saying a word and he's like just you know the whole gun in his face it's like you want to fuck with me <laughs> and, he, and he shoots him for literally no reason and that's the catalyst for this the entire movie because other than that the job is 100 percent successful and they yeah. did they, they don't ever trace them to that armored car job per se they, that is a hundred percent perfect crime except for idiot Wayne I'm going to say they went with uh, Wayne Grove because uh, Dennis Haysbert hadn't been paroled yet. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they didn't know he had been paroled yet. That's Yeah, that yeah. might be it because yeah. he seems to fit in more with the gang because he seems, you know, like he's got his stuff together. Yeah, he's, he's more cool and collected than, than Wayne Grove. Wayne Grove is a, is a psychotic. I mean, that's just all there is to it. Mr. So. Blonde is more calm and collected than Wayne Grove. <laughs> this yeah. is true. That's and and they could play each other's uh, you know cousins or something for sure. So Kevin Gage, I don't know, interesting guy. I mean, I've seen him play the heavy a lot of times, and I think he's good at it, and he's good here because if we're gonna 
you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, root for Macaulay's gang at least as much as you want to root for criminals. You got to have one of them that you can sacrifice to the wolves, and he's definitely the bad guy of of them. And you know, we'll see how it plays down. I I don't know. I thought all of it again, the precision of it, the fact that they had the trucks wrecked, they wreck them right underneath that bridge, so there's not good vision. There's just some homeless people that are too drunk to really know what's going on, and for all we know, they've you know bought them liquor the day before, and so they're still stocked up. And they're I mean they're down to clocks and seconds getting in and out of that thing and you know even they've got the getaway down they they ring the uh, they string across the road the spike so when the first responders do show up the cop cars wreck and i was like now that is i mean you talk about having everything planned and then blowing the bus up with the gasoline in the milk can milk jar i thought was just again shows you how much detail these guys put into the job there, there's one thing i don't like about it it's, it's a it's a rare production like editing error is that when when they get back into the getaway car after Wangro kills that guy I don't think De Niro was angry enough mm-hmm. I think I really really wish that De Niro killed him right then in the car or something because I'm just like like literally the, the lip syncing on the dialogue he just says oh you dumb motherfucker but you look at his lips he's not saying that that's the only moment in the movie that I'm just like that didn't really. That didn't work for me. I, you brought up something I was going to ask both of you. Why doesn't Neil just shoot him there and they just leave him with it? Is it because they might be able to trace it back to them in some way? Maybe like they might trace one of the the hockey masks to or, or, or something along those lines. Trace the gun if they got the hold of the gun. That'd be that'd be one thing. But but yeah, of course. What is what's great is that they don't kill him right there. But the plan. Is they they take him for his last meal of that pie. I love Wayne Gross saying, "You want some of this pie?" Uh, and De Niro does show up and does what I was hoping he would do in the ambulance, where he takes his head and he slams it into the table. Like a, oh, that's a classic De Niro Goodfellas kind of thing. Oh, Sosmore gets a great moment too because the guy two booths down is looking at him and he just sort of leans out into the aisle like, "You got something to say?" <laughs> no, I do not. Goes yeah, back to his paper. Just goes right back to his menu. Michael Mann is in a lot of ways is obsessed with the underbelly of LA. It's <laughs> always been good at showing it in unique ways and it doesn't disappoint here. I mean, I feel like the same way. I I really thought we're going to see them execute this guy in the parking lot. Like they've got the plastic in the trunk. They're ready to go sink that in Norman Bates's pond. I mean, this is over, <laughs> you know. And Wangro gets away, slips away as a cop is, you know, turned around to uh, pull somebody over for you know too much tinted windows or something, and, and they don't know what's going on, so they have to abort the the kill at that moment. But I I thought that was the neat thing to back up off the the criminals for a minute. Let's look at the way the cops work that scene though, because this is what's neat is always in these movies, right? The hero cop gets there first and figures everything out just by walking on the scene. Pacino doesn't even show up until it's dark already. They did that in the morning, and that's a very realistic crime scene if you guys know anything about like the way crime scenes are processed and stuff they they rarely get out of them inside of a day and the lead detective he didn't even show up until late in the day well just that just because pacino's in the lead detective doesn't mean that these guys are somehow less competent like they you know each one each of the detectives has something to say about uh, the cop about the job they're not just waiting for pacino to lead the way uh of course pacino shows up and he does he gives them a few specific orders, but yeah, the cops are, they're all just, you know, like I keep saying, they're just all, all of them are professionals, good at what they do. However, it's, it's there's the, go ahead. There's uh, only, I have one complaint about the depiction of the police in this is that they're wearing suits all the time. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, even when they're literally crouched down wearing surveillance gear, they're wearing a jacket, suit, and tie. I'm just like, this is this calls for a hoodie if it, <laughs> or something. Like, like that that strikes me as a Michael Mannism. It's mm-hmm. like you know, like everyone has to be dressed to the nines when they're going about their criminal activities, and that that's that's just a, a minor complaint. But that's that's something that my dad hates about this movie is that <laughs> you know, look look, they're all wearing their suits. They think they're so cool. Drop <laughs> dead. It's yeah, an actual quote. <laughs> Well, uh, they they end up dropping dead at the end, so yeah, or most of them. So, but I was gonna say it's the exact opposite of the detectives from um, Boondock Saints. Ted Levine wasn't like he was crushed to death by a huge friggin' guy or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, they they're. I think you hit on the word there, Kurt. Is professional. They're, they're all very professionals. As much as the criminals were professionals, and then one little thing got out of line. These cops are totally professional. I love. I think Pacino gets some of his best lines here when he's sort of breaking it down for him. He's like, "They shoot the guard here, kill that one, and kill that one, because once it turned into murder one for everybody, who cares? <laughs> you know, but why leave a witness?" And I love how he just sort of writes it off, and it's almost this sort of desensitized way of, of talking about things. But you'll even learn that that's part of his character later is that, you know, as he says, you know, I, I've got dreams of people with these eight ball hemorrhages in their head. And he's telling his wife, and you want me to come home and share all that with you? You know, because <laughs> so, somehow that, that makes all that okay. And you realize that, again, he's so obsessed with his job, and you get how obsessive he is because of the level of detail that he's able to surmise just by looking at the evidence in front of him and hearing what his team has collected throughout the day. It's a, it's a great moment of, of good police work there for Pacino. And all of that really leads us up to when you, we get to meet our characters, we sort of see where they're going and stuff. And it's all leading up to the, again, the cat and mouse that's, that's going on. And they, they get two jobs going at the same time, which I love this. It's, it, they got, you know, multiple irons in the fire here. They get pitched the bank job and they've already been setting up this platinum stealing thing out of a safe, you know. And th- I love the the Tom Noonan character again, another Michael Mann vet. If you've seen Manhunter, um, the the I will say the superior uh, performance of the Tooth Fairy, but that's another argument for another day, perhaps. But I, I love the Tom Noonan guy. Is you know he says, oh, you know, um, you, this is how you do it. You know, you know the bank's got this kind of money in this day. You hit them here. You do this, and you go in the night before and you trick out the system. I already got the computers built for it. You know, I I just know all this, and I love when. De Niro asked him, how do you know all this stuff? He's like, oh, man, it's just floating out there. You know, you just got to know how to grab it. And I'm like, this is 1995. This is before we really knew what the Internet even was. And this guy's figured this out. I, I love that almost futuristic take that he that he had. He's he's the dad of uh, Angelina Jolie and Hackers. There you go. <laughs> that's, that's where that all comes from. I think it just kind of emphasizes that they are like the professionals because – you don't go into work and do one thing all day and, and to completion and then start the next task. You do things in bits and pieces. So while you're planning for the platinum in the safe job, why not go ahead and plan the bank job too? It's not gonna you know it's not gonna make it harder to do pull off one robbery, you know. Yeah, because what's the take off the bank job? Isn't it like eleven million a piece or something like that when it all works out? Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's enough for, as, as Macaulay says multiple times, you know, if I have to go away for three or four years on it, it's worth it to me because it's the kind of money that you can, you know, 
go be stupid on the rest of your life. You don't have to do this anymore. And I, you know, what one wonders though, like, okay, if, if a guy as kind of screwed up as Tom Sizemore can apparently get his money put together right or whatever, and you, you know why Shaheerless can't, why can't Macaulay like get his stuff squared away? Or is he just so, again, on the action that he's he's got to be doing it? Well, when I think of Macaulay, I think of his his uh, not his apartment, his house. Mm-hmm. Beautiful shot when he walks in, and puts the gun and the keys on the glass table, and just you know, say, he has, and he literally has nothing mm-hmm. in his house. And like uh, Val Kilmer asked him, like, he sleeps inside, sleeping on the floor. He's like, when are you going to get some furniture? He's like, oh, I want to get around to it, which just goes back to that thing of nothing you can't walk away from to the point where. He, you know, he probably has a bed. He has maybe like a, one glass, a coffee mug, and some and a fridge with some coffee. And like he has just the bare minimum. It, it's just I, as I kind of I just feel so bad for him. Just like man, this guy is just like he has the nicest house. There's nothing in it. Like you know, you just like you want him to you want to see that he has you know a, a giant pool. He's driving a Lamborghini, whatever. But or or something. But of course, it's also the smart thing that you know he he's not drawing attention to himself uh, at all. He's very uh, inconspicuous like he's he's the way De Niro is he's absolutely a guy that if you you know you, if you just saw him on the street you wouldn't you wouldn't remember him he's just he's just another guy and, and he's definitely a guy who has a fridge full of nothing but condiments <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably just uh, i i got the sense of like this is a guy that eats out every meal for the one meal he eats a day drinks coffee the rest of the day and just sits around planning and stuff and all he's got in his you know his room is enough clothes for probably a week throws them away after he's done with them every time. And he keeps, you know, a thousand rounds of ammunition for that 45. And that's really about all he's got in the world is that. And, that, and that's all he needs to get where he wants to go, you know, and that's the, the whole setup here. And the thing is, is the way that the cops and all them ultimately arrive to all of this, they, they figured out that these guys are, are going to be involved in this kind of thing is again, good work by the police to, to ultimately get to the point because what, what they're going to do is their second job is we're going to rip off this, this platinum in this thing. And then we got to do our payoff from uh, Van Zant and Macaulay apparently has got enough money that he's fronting the cost for everything on the bank job himself. Like the rest of them aren't even pitching in on that. And he's not even asking for it back. It's just like, yeah, I'll take care of that, and then we could do the job. I, I found that to be amazing. Well, it's not oh, yeah. like you spend it all on furniture. This is true. It's yeah. he's not shopping at the local, uh, you know, Lazy Boy outlet or even the IKEA for goodness sake. So I mean, the, guy, the guy literally has nothing in there. So the second heist is really the least action of all of them because all it goes down is these guys, you know, they go out to dinner or whatever, then they go to do the job and the cops are waiting on them. And if it weren't for one SWAT guy that got bored and leaned up against the van and his gun made a noise, they would have, I mean, they'd have robbed the place and been caught right there, you know, and that'd have been it. But that one thing, I love that, that, uh, I guess it's like an infrared camera or something like that, or night vision camera. You see that look of, uh, De Niro, and it's a great shot of just that face, and he's just giving that look at that band like something ain't right about that, and he calls it off. Like they're almost there, and he just calls it off. Oh yeah, that is a killer sh- shot. Like we didn't mention the use of the blue in this movie; just yeah. is everywhere. Everything at night, like didn't that that shot of De Niro uh, in his apartment with like the lights are off, just nothing but blue everywhere, just beautiful. And even the infrared imagery is blue mm-hmm. in this movie, and that is a great shot of just 
you know, that's the one time where De Niro maybe looks pure evil is in that that shot of just, you know, that icy dark blue, just, you know, scary looking guy. And I love how the crew responds to him. Like when he, like uh, Val Kilmer says, like they're drilling and De Niro says, uh, that's it, we're walking right now, we're leaving. And Kilmer's like, I'm right there. It's like, nope, we're walking right now. Kilmer doesn't, like, you just needs to be sure. He's like, we're definitely leaving. Okay, fine. Just to drill down everything down and they just, they walk away. They leave however many, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table just to uh, to walk away because of that idiot cop in the van. And uh, that's one more thing. Like, I, I really wanted to see Pacino scream at this guy because this is this is <laughs> 90s Pacino. This is, I wanted him to have another Glengarry Glenn Ross, you know, just like with Kevin Spacey, just tear him to pieces and see this guy writing parking tickets <laughs> the next day or something. Man, that guy's an idiot. Well, you you get that moment later on, though, because as the investigation continues on, Hannah's learning more about who these guys are. And he finally, you know, we talked about the Tone Loke moment. He finally, you know, tracks down that uh, Charlene Shaherlis is having an affair with Hank Azaria, who's apparently like a real estate broker in Vegas, but he's a fugitive from Jersey for stealing cigarettes from Axel Foley or something. I don't know, but I, you get the scream moment there, right? Cause that's when he does the whole, you know, uh, he's, he's jerking the guy around telling him, what's you going to do? And the guy's like, I can't believe I got messed up with her. And he's like, she got a great ass, you know, and he just loses his mind. And I, I have to think that is just Pacino being Pacino because he goes in this whole like monologue about women's butts for like a minute and a half. And you got to wonder if Michael Mann was sitting behind the camera going, this is like insane, but we have to keep this because it's perfect. It's got to be because it, it doesn't really fit in with the Hannah character we've seen thus far. And it is Pacino being Pacino. And I think Hank Azaria, he either said it on Inside the Actor's Studio or something else, but he said the look on his face when you know Pacino screamed because she's got a great ass. He said, "You see, Hank Azaria says, the look on my face is the look of a man who has no clue what to do because he just <laughs> he's just sitting there and Pacino does that like what the hell what do I do? And he just he has that face the entire scene just mouth open just what wh- what what do I say? And he just you know and just lets Pacino give that you know <laughs> ridiculous monologue and uh, oh that's a great scene that's Pacino. That may be the biggest I can recall Pacino being. Look, the bug eye on, the, on his face yes. when, he's, when he's screaming that. It's it's rivaled by moments in later films, particularly like Devil's Advocate, when he goes off with Keanu Reeves. And Keanu also gives the performance of someone who doesn't know what to do, but that's probably because he really doesn't So and in that moment. But yeah, Pacino it just is insane. But it's that's one of my favorite moments of him in the film because it's so weird and so odd but yet what i love is how drucker and everybody reacts around him drucker's just standing back there with his hands in his pockets like yeah you're going to jail i don't care you know and he's just like he's seen it a hundred times and i don't know again that's why you, you get the camaraderie that's, that's of what, guys. <laughs> yeah that's that's one thing I, I i don't like is how much of a dick Michael T. Williamson is to Hank Azaria just because it's he Hank Azaria. Yeah, because it's Hank, it's Hank Azaria. This is I know him. You know, this is the guy from from The Simpsons. This is this guy. I, I can't love Hank Azaria anymore. So to see him just be treated like a piece of shit by Michael T. Williamson, just like, just would you lay off a man? Like the guys. You oh, know, when they, well, yeah, when they're in the safe house, he's like, go fix that lady something to drink. You better get in that kitchen. <laughs> he's like, yeah, it's like he's gonna beat him up or something. But again, it it lets you know what kind of a weasel Hank Azaria is supposed to be. I mean, you're not supposed to root for him at all i mean 
because he's a criminal too. That's the thing is, is somebody needs to pull Charlene aside and go, look, you you're making some poor choices about the men in your life. Yeah. <laughs> well, she likes a man in orange. I, clearly. <laughs> So, but I don't know. I, I again, I love how all that unfolds and stuff, and around that second robbery that gets botched, and then after that, I mean, you know, Hannah finds out that his wife is having an affair too, and I love how he kind of loses his mind on on her. And, you know, you can you can come over here and screw my wife, you can eat my food, but you will not watch my television. And just picks that TV up, and Sandra Berkeley also gives the performance of someone who's not really sure what to do next because <laughs> it looks like Pacino's about to throw that fourteen inch television at him. So, which well, remember those things, man? Wow, we've come a long way in twenty years with TVs. But I, it was funny. But I did. They had this whole conversation, you know, going on, and this is uh, juxtaposed to Macaulay meeting Amy Brenneman's character Edie, who basically like they meet in like a coffee shop or something, and then this romance just buds from there, and you see these two men going in opposite directions in their personal lives while their professional lives begin to collide. I love the scene where they, they meet in that coffee shop house. She's just like, Oh, what book, like what'd you get at the bookstore? And he, his, he's immediately on the defensive. It's like, what do you care about what I am or what I'm reading or anything? Like he's just, he's just, I think he's just, it's not just him being a dick. That's him being, you know, suspicious of everyone. Everyone should be a cop. cop. Yeah. Uh, and, but then, you know, he eventually says, look, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be, Rude. And he develops a relationship because it's just the, you know, there's a lot of backstory we probably don't see with um, Macaulay. Like he, anytime he references prison, he says, like he says, the reward's worth a stretch. But then when he's, when he's talking to Hannah, it's like, I'm not going back. Mm-hmm. So I think an unseen thing is some bad stuff happened to this guy when he was in prison. That's really motivating him to leave. Like he, this bank job, he's like, this is it. This is my last job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'm going off to New Zealand to do, I don't know what the hell he's doing there in 1995. Uh, before Lord of the Rings, but <laughs> and maybe he's financing it. <laughs> yeah, man, <laughs> that kind of dough. He's gonna go yeah. set up Summit. <laughs> he's gonna go. He's gonna go pump some money into bad taste. <laughs> <laughs> there, there we go. But I don't know. I like the, again, the, again, how those things are juxtaposed to each other because it does lead up to that great scene. It's probably the scene that most people know, besides the big shootout that we'll get to in a little bit, is the scene where De Niro or Pacino rather pulls over De Niro's uh, character and says. Oh, we have a cup of coffee. And this apparently really happened between the cop that was chasing the real Neil McCauley, that they sat down and had a cup of coffee talking about how life might play out in the future. And Michael Mann says he took a lot of this from that. And the, the you know, the, the way this thing is shot, it's, it, it's really one or two takes. I mean, he just let the guys go and he had two cameras going and then put it together from there. But it, it is, some of the best line readings you get out of two actors who are doing nothing but sitting across the table from each other. I mean, who knew something that simple would give you such great drama? Oh yeah. We didn't really uh, stress on that much, but that is one of the, in terms of like film history, mm-hmm. that is one of the most important things about this movie. This is the first time De Niro and Pacino are in a movie uh, together. They were in they're both in the Godfather part two, but they don't share any scenes at all. Because in different time periods, but this is the first time that they're in the same scene having dialogue with each other, and that alone it gives that scene an aura that it's just bizarre. Like I've seen, you know, like I can watch any other two actors act or together. I can see Jack Nicholson with anyone, but to see De Niro and Pacino, these two, the two Italian American acting icons of, of of just film history, to see them together, the scene where, where where Pacino walks up to him and when he said the way he says. 
how you doing? Mm-hmm. What do you say? I get you a cup of coffee. I that to me, I think it's intentionally winking at the audience. I'd be like, like we're about to have a scene with these two because it's just, I just think that's it's just so Pacino's being so funny because it works great as you know the cop and the criminal getting together to meet in the middle of the movie to talk, but it just on another level, more importantly, it's De Niro and Pacino acting both acting their asses off uh, mm-hmm. in that scene, talking about both of their you know dreams and aspirations, why they do what they do. Uh, and uh, of course, has an you know amazing ending to that scene, which is Pacino says, you know, I mean, we've been face to face and so on, and if it comes to it, if I got to put you down, I won't like it. But if it's between you and some poor bastard whose wife, you're going to make a widow, brother, you are going down. And De Niro says, you know, much the same. Mm-hmm. That they both they clearly have mutual respect for each other. These guys are two sides of the same coin, but uh, they're both willing to kill each other. Yeah. to accomplish their goals. I think it's clear that that one confrontation is what basically sold the movie, mm-hmm. if not to the public, although probably to the public as well, but definitely to, like, the studios. Oh, yeah, I think, like, right away, like, you know, like, Warner Brothers here is, yeah, we got De Niro and Pacino in the movie. It's like, guaranteed, there's $50 million right there. Like, we don't even care what the movie's about, where this movie's going to be a success. I think all he would have had to do is, is just shoot test footage of that and let him see it. I mean, again, it's it's a, not only a well-acted scene, it's incredibly well-written. There's not a wasted word between the two of them, and that's the economy of Michael Mann's filmmaking and writing. He's, there's nothing in there is arbitrary. It's, I mean, even crazy stuff that he lets actors just sort of riff on and do. When he's writing the dialogue and in control of it, you see the thing. And what comes out of it, and what's really funny about it is... <clears throat> He get you know Pacino gets back to his team of cops and they're like, hey, uh, Macaulay's car's over here, but he ain't nowhere around it, man. We lost him, and he's like, I, I just had coffee with him an hour ago. Yeah. And in the middle of that, you know, Macaulay somehow set it up where you guys come take my car and dump it because they've got me, you know. And I I love again just that that moment. It's you realize that you, you know he thought he had him and dang it, he's one step behind him. I'll, I'll put a, another. Dark Knight reference in here if I can guys to me this scene or the scene in Dark Knight that reminds me of this it's more intense but it's when you have Batman and Joker in the interrogation room together and Absolutely. Gary Oldman walks out and it's uh, Christian Bale and um, Heath Ledger just chew the screen up together in, in those three or four minutes and it, it's not as impactful maybe because this is a longer conversation and it's it's a little different those are superhero characters but it's it's the same kind of weight and I, I feel like if, if Christopher Nolan says he borrowed a lot from Heat in you know the cityscape of his film. He borrowed a lot from Heat in that moment too, and it and it's a good it's a good reference. I mean, it, I think it works. Oh yeah, I mean that's a whole other discussion. But I just love in that scene. It it works so good in that movie because it's such a surprise to see the superhero and the supervillain sitting down and talking to each other. You just don't see that in in movies. Period. You don't like uh, except for maybe Xavier and Magneto talking to each other. But that's a whole other discussion. You know, Dark Knight. But did you see? But do you see a lot of the cop and the criminal sitting down for a nice, calm discussion in movies? No. Mm-mm. No. So yeah, it's a. Uh... I mean, you had never seen Mr. Joshua and Martin Riggs sit down and have a cup of have a couple beers and talk about life in Lethal Weapon. You know that just wouldn't have worked. You know, not even McAllister and and. Uh, uh, 
what's Danny Glover's character today? Murtaugh. Not even McAllister and Murtaugh would have done that in that movie. I mean, it's <laughs> this is what makes this one so different is that these two men can have this level of respect for each other. And they can even say, I'm not going to like it, but if I have to, I'm going to kill you at the end of this. And like, you know, and that also lets you know, as an audience, somebody's going to die at the end of this. They're, nobody's getting away. And it's just a matter of which one is Michael Mann going to pick, you know? And we'll, we'll talk about right. that when we get there, but it's, it, it's a bit. Now, let's talk about this bank job here, okay? Because this is the elaborate robbery scene of, of robbery scenes. I can't think of another film I've seen since that I don't think they're borrowing part of this at least from it though the way all of it sets up and, and what we find out is that treo has been compromised in some way so he's out of the picture and that this is when they pick up dennis haysbert at the uh the diner where he's working and what i loved about him was that like you see him as somebody who's been paroled and he's got his woman and he's got his life together and he's telling her like yeah i'm, I'm cool baby it's gonna be good i'm gonna go do this crappy job because this is just what i have to do they've already set him up on that and, you know, uh, Macaulay gets the call and he's sitting in the diner with the guys going like, well, what are we going to do? And it's almost happenstance that he sees Dennis Haysbert there and go like, hey, remember that dude? Well, let's go ask him if he'll do the job with us. Do you think anything is happenstance in uh, in this universe? I mean, do you think that's do you think that uh, that one nod of fate is basically what precipitated the whole downfall of the gang? Uh I don't know. One time he doesn't plan something meticulously is the beginning of the end. Yeah, you know what? That's an interesting point. I never thought about it like that before. What do you think, Kurt? Uh, yeah, that comes to mind as how realistic. I think it's because De Niro is like, I need to, I want to leave, and I'm leaving in you know a couple of days, so I gotta get, I gotta do this job today, as opposed to let's put it off a year. So that's a big mistake on his part because realistically, it's like we just lost you know one of our four guys. We should probably call it off, but uh, he's like, "No, I need the, I need to do it right now." Like Puppy Kilmer's thinking the same thing. It's like, "No, I need the money." So the so the reasons for doing the job become uh, more uh, more personal as opposed to you know thoughtful, uh, and that absolutely is you know one of the things that just you know brings it all crashing down because that job, much like that first job, uh, is it it all goes according to plan until the very last second up until the bullets start flying you know the job is you know the most successful crime committed on film yeah let's talk about the bank robbery i've i've seen a lot of films where bank robbery is a part of the film stuff like that and never anything is nearly as meticulous as the way that they go about all this stuff like just from everything they say i mean first they walk in and they immediately get everybody down and i love how Macaulay sort of gets the crowd or the crowd in the bank out of it. Like, look, I'm not stealing your money. Your money's insured. I'm here for the bank's money. Just don't be an idiot. You know, get out of the way and don't don't be a hero. This is not your day. And it takes them totally out of it. And I love how, too, he gets right to the point with the bank manager. It's like, where's the key to the safe? And he looks at him like, what? And he punches him right in the mouth. And it's like, that key. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, you know, he's, he's no nonsense at all. Oh yeah, like once again the the professional aspect. They're not screaming. He doesn't swear. He doesn't. Uh, I don't even think they fire. They don't fire their guns in the bank. It's just uh, there's very meticulously. You know, Kilmer takes out the takes out the guard with the, that baton he's got, and everyone else has had their guns pointed. And yeah, I I do like how uh, De Niro 
becomes the master of ceremonies in this bank and giving the direction. If anyone's sick, like I like how he says, anyone's sick or has a heart condition, go lean against the wall uh, so we can keep an eye on you. I guess if someone's going to have a heart attack, we can administer first aid or something. Uh, and I love uh, if there's one unrealistic thing, it's I, I, I got to wonder how heavy those bags of money are. Yeah. I've lifted I've lifted cardboard boxes that are filled with a couple of books, and that's one of the heaviest things I've ever lifted, honestly. And so when he got a, a duffel bag filled with millions and millions of dollars, and they're carrying them around in a duffel bag, that's like uh, it's the that's the only thing because they're carrying them around and going about the most intense shootouts these, that either of these guys have ever been through. Well, but, yeah, well, the carrying it out. I mean, good grief! I I don't know how big you'd have to be able to haul something like that. Yeah, it's it's probably having carried um, p- boxes full of paper like reams of paper in the in a print shop environment. I can tell you that <laughs> one of those duffel bags was probably pushing uh, 150 to 200 pounds. It, 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 assuming it's the uh, assuming that's roughly the weight of three reams of paper, which it looked like it was about the same amount of paper. Uh, just you know, cut into denominations, but it, it's a that's very heavy. I mean, two two paper boxes is a lot for one person, and it's kind of straining the limits of what you can carry um, healthily. And then just <laughs> then to put it on your back in one of those awkward early '90s things before people learned about ergonomic design and, <laughs> and yeah, and, the, the strap that would cut right through you, yeah, yeah, and clearly it it, it looks uncomfortable because. Nobody looks really happy to be carrying those bags. Like the actors don't look happy to be carrying those bags. I have <laughs> yeah. no doubt they're just full of pounds and pounds of paper. And they're like, all right, Tom Sizemore, just heft this on one arm. <laughs> While you're holding a child and an automatic rifle. You know? <laughs> and oh, you hold that rifle right. Because <laughs> you know? so, they, they put these guys through boot camp, basically, to learn how to hold the guns right and stuff. So, no, it, I mean, it, the thing is, is it's a totally precise job. But as we'll find out, Wayne Grow tips off uh, Hugh Benny, uh, uh, Van Zant's guy, who tells the cops, hey, here's what they're doing. And the cops are able to get the drop on them at the bank. So just as they're about to walk out, and get away with all of it. The cops are setting up, and I love how the the last person walking out is uh, Val Kilmer, and he's smiling. And all of a sudden, he sees the cops, and like immediately pulls the gun up and starts firing. Like there's not even hesitation. Right back to the professional thing. These guys are at a moment's notice. These guys are always ready to kill, and it takes like one, like literally a. It's cut so well because it's like clearly there's tons of people walking by, cars driving by, but he sees these two guys with. In suits holding guns on the other side of the road, it's like this is like it, in seeing them, he knows we're now going to have to shoot ourselves out of downtown Los Angeles in 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 the broad daylight with every probably every all of the LAPD is descending on us, and uh, you know we're about to have the fight of our lives here. What I found amazing about this, and still do every time I watch it, is the sound design. Because that was the thing oh, yeah, yeah. that that Michael Mann realized: if you fire weapons like this in that kind of environment, that sound is going to go everywhere. It's going to be it's going to be a zoo. You won't know if you're going left or right. And they captured that in such a great way. I mean, it's a mix of ADR and on-set sound that we get in the film, and I I just think that is an amazing you know film story about how they got 
the sound of this battle going down because there's so little dialogue. It's all just guns going off. And, you know, that can be really campy and over the top, or it can be, you know, seem real process or something, or it can seem very real. And I mean, I've fired a a lot of different kinds of weapons and some of the ones that we see on the film there, and that's what they sound like. And especially what they sound like in a real, you know, bangy, noisy environment. And that's the thing that really gets me about this scene every time I see it is just the noise and how these guys, the cop and the criminals, keep their composure in the midst of just all this hell raining down on them. I think that's a good uh, a good nod, again, to Michael Mann's uh, obsessive perfectionism. Because you're right, it does really capture the sound of, like, firing a weapon and like a, you know, like a, almost like a firing range. Mm-hmm. It, I think that's what keeps it from becoming cheesy is because it doesn't sound like, you know, Rambo uh, firing off from the hip. Yeah. It sounds threatening enough that it, that it sounds like a real weapon. And I think that gives it an extra element of danger for us, the viewing audience, because, you know, I know when I listened to it or when I watched the movie, I had my headphones on so I could get the good surround kind of feeling, not lose any of the noise to the background. Mm-hmm. And I've got noise canceling headphones, so they're extra in. So I'm extra into it. But when I heard those guns going off, I was instinctively looking around <laughs> like somebody was firing off rounds in my backyard. I mean, of all the there's so many Oscars this movie should have been nominated for. The one it absolutely should have got and won is Ben sound editing and mixing the the sound the gunshots in this movie i pr- i think i can't think of another movie that has better more impactful gunshot sounds in any movie the the guns are so loud again this is a movie you this is a movie you pop in to test out your sound system you put yes. in the bank you put in the shootout scene to see you know how powerful can these speakers go because they're just uh, i think he's speci- i think uh he must have cranked up the volume even more so because literally just you, you know listening to it they're just louder mm-hmm. like just just literally more decibel than uh, other gunshots in any other movie and it does it just makes it makes it scarier yeah it does it makes it makes you realize they're in this big open environment the other thing is that it's daylight how many times does this kind of scene happen in the middle of the night you know and you don't you don't necessarily you know you can't really follow everything because it's dark or whatever this is in the broad daylight that all this goes down and it's a, I mean, it's a, a pretty amazing fight. And in a gunfight like this would be, you know, you would think that, oh, well, there's going to be like hundreds of dead people here now, you know, because there's no way anybody could survive that. But if you're just shooting at random with a weapon, you're, you're not going to hit anything. And I love how the bullets bounce off of everything around them. But when somebody leans in to really get the kill, they're, they're doing it on purpose. And I mean, we see Bosco get killed here. Ted Levine gets shot like right in the neck. And that's the thing is he's wearing a bulletproof vest. So I think it was, I think it was, uh, um, Sizemore that got him. I mean, he had to be looking for that. You know, again, it's that, that intricate level of detail about the battle that makes this so much more, I don't know, impactful to watch. It makes it more, dare I say, real. Yeah, I'd need to think about other crime. Like, this has to be the biggest action scene in a crime f- film. I mean, this is like a, a scene out of a war movie happening mm-hmm. in a you know cops and robbers movie. It's so massive. I, I keep forgetting every time I watch it. Like the movie's kind of kind of small, intricate you know movie in in, in, in smaller scale scenes. And this high, this heist scene happens, and it's the big biggest scene made probably in any Michael Mann movie. Next to maybe you know this, the battle scenes in Last of the Mohicans. Uh, cause it's, it is a proper, 
war zone that they turn uh, LA into. The amount of I can't imagine the amount of squibs and blanks <laughs> yeah. they went through. <laughs> I mean, you know, they probably they must have set a record or something because like it, it's like they don't uh, they don't really fake anything. It's not like it's it's proper. Just we just locked off this part of downtown LA, and we're gonna fire millions and millions of uh, rounds of ammo. That would have been a good day to be on set. <laughs> Not if you value your hearing. Yeah, everybody would have had some yeah. extra protection in for sure. It's so. it's kind of the it's the it does for movie gunfights what bullet did for movie car chases. Mm. Oh, yeah. Even down to the sound design. Like what when I first got my dad a Blu-ray player, I one of the movies I knew he would want because it's one of his favorite car chases of all time is the bullet car chase scene. Mm-hmm. So we took the Blu-ray player to my uncle's house. He's got a big screen TV and he's got the surround sound. And we put that on, and you are just—you may as well be riding shotgun with Steve McQueen because of the way that the that movie uses the sound of those engines and the squeal of the tires, mm-hmm. and and the cars sound like the real cars do, uh, and and this I, I think has a lot. Uh, I won't go so far as to say it owes something to Bullet, but I think it's definitely a an incredible technical achievement. Uh, just from you know, like a sound standpoint, and it's also for just from a pure like filmmaking standpoint. It's 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 not it's violence as not as val not as ballet, but it's violence as uh, parts moving in a grandfather clock. Hmm. Yeah, it's very just, it's just very... the way they all they all cover for each other. The way the cops mm-hmm. cover for each other. They move from car to car. You know, you've got a guy shooting back, you've got a guy shooting front, and you've got the third guy moving. That's, that's it's just phenomenal blocking. Number one, and it's again, I mean, this this crime scene was so good, it inspired real life criminals. <laughs> yeah, like this gave criminals ideas on how to better rob banks. Yeah, that's that's how that's how scary it is <laughs> and that it got that. But in in the melee, we already talked about Ted Levine gets shot and killed. One of the other guys gets shot. Um, Val Kilmer gets shot in the shoulder, and we'll learn later like he fractures his collarbone and stuff. So he gets shot, and Neil's dragging him off the side, and Tom Sizemore gets separated from them, and and uh, Al Pacino's giving chase on him. And I, I love how this scene plays out because it's I don't know it it gives you I guess if you needed a moment that you wanted Pacino to win when Tom Sizemore picks up that little girl and he's basically using her as human shield, then you're like, oh yeah, he's got to die. Like, you just knew he was going to get it, right? And when Hannah puts him down, it's a great little moment of slow-mo. It's like he sizes up, and right as he turns around, he pulls the trigger, and then he just pulls the gun down real slow, and then realizes, oh, i got to go in there and get that kid. Well, I, I, and interesting, you say that she's using her, he's using her as a human shield. I always looked at that as he's getting her out of the way. He's like, because he's a father. He's got, I think he, yeah. had, like, he has two daughters, and then he's like, uh, he's, he's getting her not so much as use as shield, but to just you know get her out of the way, uh, it, it, but it, whatever it is, it makes Pacino's decision in that way more uh, impactful. That this you know he's going to like yeah I'm going to take a shot when the guy has a kid in his arms. And that's the kind of guy Pacino is. That adds to the, the character big time. However, it it really uh, makes some uh, uh, interesting you know uh, future story that kid's probably gonna have a lot of therapy. <laughs> I would imagine so. Chess gonna have to say the words, and then I was, and then all of a sudden the guy I was looking at is the the brains flew out of the back of his head. Yeah, you know, 
And then I look over and it's Al Pacino yelling at me about asses. <laughs> Thank goodness he didn't do anything like hooah at the end of that. But he has that look on his face. I mean, we, we learn about that character earlier that he was he was a Marine and all this stuff, you know. So you, he's got the training and you see him put it into action and it's like, wow, that was scary. You know, just how well he put the guy down and then he runs in there and gets the kid and that's it. And I mean, it's at that point, it's, you know, it's. Macaulay and and Shahirless have gotten away somehow in all that melee, but I mean there's there's wasted ammunition all over the road. There's injured people. There's a dead criminal. There's a dead cop. There's I mean there's two dead criminals. Dennis Haysbert gets shot and crashes the car, the getaway car. So talk about a crappy day on the job for him. I mean you know what a, what a bad way to end. And I don't know. I just I've, I thought all of that at the end of it. How do you top that? How do you get on top of that whole thing? And that you know, the rest of this is really about you know the heat around the corners. What I call it is like, okay, is Macaulay going to be able to get out of here, and or is Pacino going to be able to, or is Hannah going to be able to catch him? You know, it's the whole the whole rest of the film, and it's I think it plays out really fast, and it's uh, you know because this could be the part where it's like, well, this is tacked on. It's almost like the fourth act, but it doesn't feel that way at all. Yeah, that that's one thing when I talk about the first time I watched this movie. When that bank hot when the when the bank shootout is over, mm-hmm. you, I was kind of ready for the movie to wrap up because like, well, like, I mean, after something like that, that's as big a climax in a action movie as I've seen. So like, so it's going to start wrapping up, and there's like, no, there's another like hour and ten minutes to go. Yeah. After that, and I think once you realize that, uh, when you realize that, no, that's just that's just the that's the middle mm-hmm. of this movie, and uh, for some reason, yeah, you said the the. The last hour or so of this movie goes by so quickly because I think it's because Macaulay is in much more danger now. He's on the run mm-hmm. because now it's all over the news. His face is all over the news. It's like you know Neil, Mac- this is the guy we're looking for, and so on. So uh, it just makes like he's he's much more you know as you know he's uh, he's he's panicked of like you know because now if I didn't have to leave town before now I got to get out of here within the you know within 24 hours. Otherwise, they're going to, and they're not even going to bother arresting me. They're going to, they're probably going to shoot me when they find me because, you know, he killed, because every one of the, the, that crew, they killed lots of cops in that shootout. Yes. And you also saw them, uh, you also saw some innocent civilians also get shot. Yep. So, I mean, there's lots of carnage at the end of that. And you're not just going to be able to walk away and grab, you know, get the first flight out. As a matter of fact, that he even calls, you know, Nate the fence. We haven't even talked about John Voight, who has just this small part. Much better fake accent than Anaconda, wouldn't you say, Kurt? So yeah, for, I, I'd have to say that, yeah. Yeah, for, for John Voight. And, you know, he, he tells him, you got to get me a new out because the, the one to get out to New Zealand ain't going to work now. I can't trust it after everything that's gone down. And Macaulay's the one that kind of puts it together like, well, who was there it's got to be Treo that gave us up and that's what we find out is he yet yeah, that's what's happened and when he gets to Danny Treo's place I mean talk about sad he's just laying on the floor he can't move his face is beat to like a pulp and his his wife's on the bed dead and they beat it out of him basically and he tells him yeah I'm, I'm sorry I'm the one that gave you up you know and please don't leave me like this and Macaulay just executes it yeah, that, that's a t- that's a tough scene because he he says I'm going to call you an ambulance, mm-hmm. and he's like, no, like don't I don't want like he's like you know she's gone I don't want to live I don't want to live a, a second after this so yeah. just go ahead and do it and yeah it's a great shot pulled back you know from a wide shot of we just see the you know that great shot of you know the flash from inside the house and we know it's done 
We also got to talk about the, the one thing that I think the film slows down for is Macaulay trying to convince Edie to go with him. And how does she come around to just going with this, you guys? I, I don't. I never understood that. Why she didn't just run? That is, a, I think, that is a flaw in the screenplay of this movie. Because when she finds out that you know Macaulay's this bank robber who killed a lot of people that day, she realistically, you know, walks out the door, mm-hmm. and that is kind of where it ought to end. And I, I even watching it last night, I can't remember specifically. What is it that makes her want to stay with this mass murderer that you know has no problem killing police or shooting at innocent civilians? Like, it it would have been better if she just flat out never came back because it wouldn't have stopped De Niro from you know doing what he has to do, carry on this revenge this revenge plot that he's got going. I think it actually would have made the revenge plot make a little bit more sense. Because now he he would have nothing else yeah. but revenge to motivate him. You know his idea of revenge is twofold. He's got to get Van Zant. You know he wants him because that you know we didn't talk about that, but they uh, the worst assassination attempt of all time. I think you called it Kurt, where they're supposed to <laughs> yeah. pay him off at the old drive-in movie theater, and they try to shoot them all, and then of course Macaulay's crew blows them all away. He wants to go after Van Zant for that, and he wants to take out Wayne Grove because that's the real problem here. That guy has screwed everything up from the armored car till this, and he's going to get it. And as an audience, I think we're supposed to root for that to happen even more than Van Zant because Wangro is, I mean, he's a serial murderer. He killed a hooker. I don't know how Vince and Hannah's investigating that while he's investigating all this other crap, too. I mean, it's like, that's one job he didn't need. But, you know, he has to do that. He's killing people in bars. I mean, this is a bad dude. So we want him dead. Yeah, if there is... Um if any of the, if there, you can say that there's a pure antagonist, it would be probably Wayne Grow. Uh, I think we've established that. Um, as, as awesome as I think the actor is, and I think that performance is, because that's he's definitely one of the the uh, non Pacino, non De Niro highlights of the film. Oh yeah, at least to me, I, I could I could make the argument that uh, the ultimate villain wasn't really Wayne Grow, but it was kind of just greed. Uh, you know, Tom Sizemore goes along because he needs the adrenaline rush. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they didn't try to to double cross William Fitchner, it, that as much as anything else is kind of the point where everything starts to go wrong for the crew. Because you know, if they had just taken the bearer bonds and had uh, you know made the offer, I don't think they would have gotten tangled up with him. Uh, you know, Henry Roll- Henry Rollins wouldn't have uh, rolled over on him. You know, and it wouldn't have started the whole downward spiral of the thing, of, of the crew. So I think you could say that the, or I think I would make the argument that greed was the ultimate uh, kind of was the th- is the movie's one through line. Hmm. Uh, Very interesting. Yeah, greed kind of, and this 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 code of honor that these these guys have definitely brings them down because it's uh, to me it, it suddenly becomes a bit of a sad moment when you know what's going to happen when you, the second time you watch the movie when de niro's he's home free essentially like uh, yeah. uh, nate says plane's ready to go you know you're home free i'll see you know see, yeah see you in the next life or whatever and he's ready to go and de niro takes it you know takes an exit he's like nah i got one more thing to take care of and yeah. it's like he's he has no real reason it's a it's 100% malice and rage it's like i want to i just i have <laughs> Everything in my body, I just I have to kill this guy. I can't live in the same world as Wayne Grow. 
after what this guy's done to me and mine. Right. Uh, and that's 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 what brings him down because he would have made it to New Zealand, uh, you know, that night had he not uh, been so driven by revenge. Exactly. So he, he traces Wangro down to the hotel that the cops have got him hid away in, that they're watching the door. And now, if you, if you haven't seen L.A. Takedown, this is the climax of the film, which I think is, I, I'm glad it goes on beyond this, but he knocks out the cop, he's able to get in the door, and I love how he puts out puts down Wangro. He looks at he gets him, knocks him down on the couch, and he says, look at me. I want you to look at me. It's like, I want you to see me when I shoot you in the chest. You know, and I thought, well, that is just, you know, this is a personal thing, and this is going to be his undoing because he's taking this so personally. Yeah, and it's such a brutal kill, the way when he gets shot, just like all of a sudden, you know, just like the air is just pushed. I was like, <gasps> it's like, uh, that's a painful looking gunshot. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's as, it's as brutal, and at the same time, it is satisfying. Just like, finally, he killed that guy. Yeah, you wanted that guy dead, like we said. I mean, yeah, he, he definitely had to go, and they, he put him out pretty pretty violently i love how mccauley deals with the cops that try to get him right after kills uh wangro like literally the specific mm-hmm. movie does it's like you know he's got his he's literally got his hands you know behind his back or whatever he starts backing up uh and when he hears that the cop his back has touched the wall he knows i can get the drop on him and, yeah. he, and he turns around smashes him with a flashlight and beats his ass and it's like that's a great you know that's like a some kind of james that's like a james bond move to me Mm-hmm. Of like listening, just let you know, listening for the sound. Okay, he's touched the wall. Now I can get him. Yeah, he's got him. Got him dead to rights at that point, and he runs out of the place. And I, this is the moment. You know, he's got Edie in the car, but he sees Hannah coming out, and literally the heat coming around the corner, and he runs. And I was like, so he did walk away from her just too late. Yeah, that's a a great um, just moment in this movie is that like they take like a, a time slows down in that moment where he's like he sees hannah he sees Edie. it's like he's doing the math in his head it's like i'm not gonna make it like if i got in the car he'd shoot at the car i'm dead so he's like i'm gonna walk away from this woman to uh to avoid prison to just to you know to to get away like he, he does that thing he's always talking about and we could see this is what it looks like to walk away from everything he's done all of this stuff to be with this woman and it's still it's just like in, in a quick flash. Nope, I'll, I'll completely change, change my mind 100% about being with this woman. It's, it's, it's a sad moment. Yeah, we've already seen Val Kilmer do this with Ashley Judd at that point, too, because he's walked away and has gotten out and gone away. And so now it's to see De Niro do it here. It's the culmination. But it's again, it's too late because Hannah's hot on his tail. But does he but does he he walk away from um Edie to get away from prison or does he walk away from Edie to keep her from going down with him? See, I think I, I think you hit on it there, Ron. I actually think he walks away to protect her because like Kurt said, well, if I get in this car and get in a shootout with this, this you know guy, she's probably going to get killed and get implicated in stuff that she got no business being in. This ain't hers. And so he does the honorable thing if you know, there's honor among thieves here and he walks away from her to protect her. And I think that's kind of the same thing that, um, Chris does with his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knows that the cops have her. And I think she knows that if they have, if they have it together enough to have a signal, this is what, this is, I'll do this thing with my hand when the police are here with me, mm-hmm. they've got it together enough that they've got a, 
country with a non-extradition treaty to meet up in. Hmm. I mean, they're going to Venezuela somehow. I had never thought about that. Did they ever meet up again? That's an interesting point. Well, just the mo- the movie is at, at that point. The movie couldn't be. It's screaming sad, and the look on Val Kilmer's face doesn't say, "I'll see you when I see you." It's like, "I'm never seeing you again." And who knows? He's probably who knows what happens to uh, Chris's character, whether he's killed by the people he owes money to or something. But like. You know, a hap- this guy does not have a happy ending in any way. I know it's it's an interesting point and something to think about here because it does lead us to one of the neatest scenes in the film, and what a great way to do a, a you know chase you through the maze. You know, it's almost like a nod to The Shining again here with what Michael Mann is doing, and I, I love how these two are are chasing each other around the the fields that line up near runways and they you know they have to duck when the light you know the planes come over and the landing lights hit so that they can stay out of each other's shadows and that ultimately it's when Macaulay tries to turn around the corner and Pacino sees the shadow I mean it's almost like instinct he just wheels around and fires and it, you didn't even really see what he's shooting at almost it's like uh uh Clarice in um, The End of the Silence of the Lambs, all she hears is the gun cock and she just turns around and just lays rounds out. I thought that, that was a great way to, uh, to end it. And uh, if you're going to have a, you know, a high noon standoff in this, if this is a modern Western, you know, it can't end any other way, right? It's got to be something like this. Oh, yeah. And it's, and I've, I was thinking about this during the, the shootout scene too, is that the way Michael Mann's constructed this movie of how, you know, you don't really hate any character except for Wayne Grow. So in that shootout, it plays on your emotions a bit. You're not sure who you want to win on this. Like, 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 like literally, like, like you got the devil angel on your shoulder, like the angels saying the cops should beat the criminals, but the mm-hmm. devil saying they worked real hard to get that money. You know that you want them to succeed, and same thing happens in that shootout where you're just like, I'm not 100% certain who. Because you know what this scene, you know this movie ends with one of them dying, You're, and I'm just not sure who I want, who I want it to make it. Because you, both of them are uh, such great, you know, res- like kind of re- you can respect what these guys do. So it's just a matter. It's, it could have easily been any of them. They're both uh, as good a shot as the other, and it's just uh, it just happened to be Hannah got the drop on him first, and you know, but it could have been either. Because uh, I'm still not sure who I want to win on that. Hmm. After after the kind of um, wonderfully choreographed uh, gunfights uh, in the, uh, the the shootout the the uh, shootout into downtown L.A., I really liked that the final death of the film wasn't you know high noon. Mm. Uh, it, it it wasn't you know it wasn't you know two guys standing on in a dusty street. One of them draws slightly faster than the other one you know i liked that it was just kind of an instinctual you know he shot him before he you know basically before he realized who it was mm-hmm. and he was just anybody coming around that corner was probably going to get shot yeah, yeah in that moment and what, what's even better is that you know de niro's shot in the chest and is laying there dying and his last line is i told you i was never going back and then they do that whole hand grasp thing. And I was like, and, and it's almost like he's saying, we just hold my hand as I slip off into the darkness here. And Pacino's like, yeah, okay. And he, you know, he just looks off into the distance and it's like, wow. I mean, what, I mean, the music, everything in that scene just is 
perfect for me. It's one of the best endings of a film I think he could have ever concocted. It's 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 stunning. Oh yeah, for for a movie that's you know very much a guys guys kind of movie, very macho yeah. uh, movie. It ends with a very touching uh, ending, and I can't recall another crime film that ends on a note like that. Like Collateral doesn't end like that. Mm-hmm. Thief Thief has a very kind of badass kind of you know ending, but this one ends with you know. With, it ends on 100% a sad note because we've just we've because uh, we've just seen all the stuff De Niro's gone through and to see him die, it, would, it probably would have been just as sad if 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 Pacino died too. But it's just a yeah, very sad moment and just a great final shot of the, we see the back of Pacino and the front of uh, De Niro dying as they uh, hold hands. Great shot. Yeah, as the plane rides over one last time. So, I again just a, a real stunning end to what had been a you know it's a three hour film and it doesn't feel like it. So, I think we're at the point of the podcast, guys, where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, what are yours for Heat, Kurt? Well, as I've said, this is a film I didn't like the first time, but upon repeat viewings, multiple repeat viewings, I just love. This movie, this is an all-time favorite for me in terms of, like, favorite cop films. It's like, you know, this is up there. This is in that top five, like, you know, French Connection, LA Confidential, The Departed, Heat. Uh, and just as, as a it just movie, as a Michael Mann fan, this is sort of his, this is sort of the definitive Michael Mann movie. Uh, my personal favorite is The Insider, which I cannot recommend enough. It's totally different from Heat, but you, you've got to watch The Insider, anyone listening to this. But anyway, but Heat... As a fan of crime films, uh, this one really stands out because it's such an epic. Not just in terms of length, but in terms of we see all sides of the world of crime, of crime and the law. And, of course, the TV show that it brings to mind for me that I'm such a huge fan of is The Wire. And one of my favorite things about that show is is it's that same sort of dynamic of we see everything the cops do and everything the criminals do. And you work it out. You work it out on whose side you're on, who you want to succeed, uh, and that's what he does. It kind of plays with your morality in that way. Like you just, you're not sure who whose side should I be on, because it's not just you know oh, Pacino's the cop. I'll be with the cop, because De Niro's not an evil guy. Pacino's not necessarily the nicest guy, and and so on. Anyway, but the action is superb. That shootout is insane all of the, the the sound effects are amazing it's it's so tense the detail of the crimes are so meticulous you know it's like a semi-documentary on how to commit crimes like siskel said uh and overall it's just it's a masterpiece looking back at 1995 i think if this movie came out today it would be nominated for best picture screenplay director and i just don't know how it completely slipped under the uh, award altogether and that's a real shame because this is one of the best this is one of the best movies ever made and i give it nothing less than an extra large popcorn ron yeah i clearly have to go with with the extra large popcorn i mean typically when even uh, no matter what movie i watch i will sit and take a ton of notes uh, anytime I review anything for Den of Geek, anytime I appear on this podcast, I've got like three or four pages of notes. And about, you know, an hour into the movie, I just quietly closed my uh, document and just completely ignored my note-taking uh, responsibilities to just enjoy it. 
and you know I spent the last hour needing to get up and go pee, and I just <laughs> couldn't stop. I just kept going, kept going, kept pushing, you, you know, and, and I didn't wet the bed, thankfully. So, <laughs> so that's one good thing. But yes, extra large popcorn. It definitely is one of those movies that really lives up to the hype. Um, it's it's clearly probably the. It, I, it's weird to say this for two really distinguished, really decorated actors, but it's kind of the high water mark. It's like that last great season for both Pacino and De Niro. And they're surrounded by an all-star cast of, you know, great character actors who are really at the top of their game at that point. So it's definitely extra large popcorn for sure. I'm glad you, you enjoyed it, Kurt. I know I kind of knew you you liked this because we had talked about it offline and stuff. But I, I love talking about this film because I think that's one of the, the hallmarks of it is that much like a film like The Dark Knight and Inception and there are several others I could think, but you know, Godfather goes in there too. It, Jaws. I can talk about this film incessantly with people that like all kinds of different stuff. I've never introduced this to someone and they didn't like it. I, I, I don't know if you like film and if you like drama, you like action, you like crime, you like even a little bit of horror, you like, you like funny stuff. I think you would dig this film because there's something for you here and it's just well balanced. And Kurt, I think I can't give it any more praise than what you said. If this was nominated today, it would be a crying shame and people would gnash in the streets you know, about it that it didn't get nominated. This film kind of quietly came and went and just sort of blew by award season and looking back it's one of those it, that could be a topic someday maybe for the Fabish factors years the academy just totally missed you know whiffed on something and this is one that they whiffed on because one of my favorite films too definitely always in my top 10 and it's my favorite michael mann film and i love thief and i like the insider and ali and i even like public enemies and manhunters a real special one for me but this one is my favorite michael mann i just i, I everything else i watch of his i judge against this because i think it's it's his passion project clearly and he it, it did a masterful job with it and everybody here involved with it great work all around so extra large popcorn for me too this is a first by the way that all three hosts of a show have given an extra large popcorn to a film like even back like dark really? night rises and stuff yeah we've had like three larges we've had an extra large and two larges but we've never <laughs> all just effusively praised something the way that we have this <laughs> film but i do think even so that you know, we all went into this i knew i was going to like it kurt i kind of knew you were going to like it had a feeling ron might like it too i, I thought you know we are we're probably gonna you know talk too much good stuff about this movie but it's going to be worth it because again there's just so much to talk about here and gosh guys we left an hour of it on the table i mean there's so much stuff we didn't even get into but uh yeah maybe for another day but folks if you if you've enjoyed this podcast we really appreciate your support and thank you again for another great year with continuous play. Can't think of a better way to kick off 2015 than to come out of the gate with something like heat. And I'm really excited about that and what we've got coming up. Kurt, Ron, thanks for joining me on the show. It's all downhill from here, Jay. (laughs) (laughs) For you and I, it literally is my friend. (laughs) We'll talk about that in a second, but Kurt, (laughs) tell folks a little bit about the Fabish factor. Well, the Fabish Factor is a podcast where we get into all kinds of topics regarding film and television. We covered all of uh, Game of Thrones seasons one, two, and three. Going to get to season four at some point. Uh, maybe by the time you're listening to it, it's already out there. But and we also cover uh, just sort of random films. We covered uh, 
Batman Begins, the Alien films, and we covered certain years of film. We did 1986 with uh, Franco. I've uh, covered 2011 and 12 with uh, with Nick, and 1995 with uh, Cody Lang, where we got in, where we both got a pretty in depth into uh, Heat, which both ended up on our top ten films of that year. It was my number three, uh, which was that was a pretty good year for crime films. Uh, anyway. But uh, the Fabish Factor, and also you can find us. You can find us on iTunes for the podcast, and on Facebook, where we begin to very much the same discussions, just on uh, with writing and text, as opposed to uh, through a microphone. And and snarky pictures. How dare we forget that? So, yeah, yeah. You'll you'll find several of the continuous play hosts hanging out on the Fabish Factor uh, Facebook page. So invite folks to go there. Ron, tell folks how they can find your writing on the internet. Yes, you can find me. I am the American correspondent for denofgeek.com. That's the UK version, not the US version. And you can find me uh, just about every five days a week at popfi.com, P-O-P-F-I, where I talk about weird things in the news and movie trailers, things that just entertain me. (laughs) Okay, you'll find me talking about uh, Walking Dead, Game of Thrones, Falling Skies, Teen Wolf, The Following... Basically everything, either really good or really terrible on television. <laughs> it's a Rhodes Gallery for sure. Oh, American Horror Story. That's it. Good and terrible at the same time. Yes, it is. And almost the same show sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, well, of course, folks, you know you can find all of my stuff at ContinuousPlayPodcast.com. That's where you can link to The Fabish Factor, to Filmstrip, this podcast, and all the many kinds of things we reviewed. I mean, good grief. Last year, Kurt, you and I did the Star Wars films, probably our most epic series of all time. Yeah. And, Ron, we introduced you on the show by doing, you know, Tales from the Crypt and American Ninja movies. And so uh, I've done, you know, reviews of alien i've done wrestling movies with brian all kinds of stuff there you know romantic comedies with anna the harry potter movies we got all kinds of stuff at film strip we, we don't tie ourselves to one genre we've pretty much done everything we even did a documentary about the guy that invented the jelly belly jelly bean once y'all so i mean a little bit of everything there at film strip and of course the seven seasons the seven seasons of buffy the vampire slayer retrospective the art of slaying also available at continuousplaypodcast.com you can hook up with us on our facebook page and twitter accounts and of course, leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think of the show. We always appreciate your support. And 2015 is going to be an interesting year here on Filmstrip. I just want to run down some of the stuff we got planned coming up for you, the listener here, throughout this year. I mean, we're doing you know maybe one of the best films of all time here, and then Ron and I are going to do possibly two the two worst films of all time the room <laughs> and after last season uh if we'll talk about those soon we've got you know some more chuck norris action coming up um brian and i are gonna dive in and do back to the future which is a big one for him really excited about that ron in the in the spring and the summer you and i are going to do some heavy action we're going to do the five dirty hairy films and then we're going to do the mad max retrospective leading up to mad max fury road that comes out at the end of may very exciting. Very, very exciting about that. Yeah, that's one of your big ones, I know. And, of course, so much more stuff coming around. And who knows what we'll come up with for you know Halloween time next time. And, Kurt, I know we'll have you on more shows, but definitely next December, you and I will be doing Star Wars 7. Because by that's then, it'll right. be out. So, uh, you know. But, yeah, so lots of stuff planned for the coming year, folks. We appreciate your support, as always. So until next time, for Kurt and Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes, like our Facebook page, and visit our website, 
continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies for more episodes. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of its respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. I told you I'm never going back.